Hi, I'm Ben Wright, Director of Portland. I'm delighted to be joined today by Matt Dickinson, the Chief Sports Writer at The Times. In over 20 years at The Times, Matt has covered many of the world's biggest sporting events, including six football World Cups, the Olympic Games, the Ryder Cup and the Tour de France, where I first met Matt in my role as Head of Communications at Team Sky. Matt has seen firsthand how the relationship between the sports media and the people they cover has changed. And we'll be talking about what that means for the future of sports journalism. This is To The Point. Okay, Matt, to start with what is quite a broad question, how would you say the relationship between the sports media and the people you write about has changed since you first came into the industry? Uh, I would say probably the, um, I was going to say the small army of PRs and marketing people have come in. It's probably a pretty big <laughs> army by now. Um, we don't, we know, don't take offence, don't worry, it's fine. <laughs> no, but it's, you know, it's an, indi- it, the, the sporting industry has grown. I mean, there's no two ways about it. You know, the, the amount of coverage, the scale of coverage and a lot of that is a great thing and you know that that is a sign that I think more people are more interested in sport than ever there's more exposure to it there's you know there's more on tv I mean you know if we want to be make me sound a real dinosaur obviously you know I'm I you know I grew up in a time when there were sort of a handful of football matches on tv and I guess you hear those complaints oh you know there's too much of it well you know I prefer I prefer to be at this extreme than the, the one I grew up in so the sporting business has grown you know beyond almost any imagination and say I think a lot of that is is great but there's no doubt that it has shall we say complicated the job of being a journalist and the access you get and the let's say the some of the negotiation maybe that you have to do to get that access and i think we talk about access though i think sometimes i'd be interested to see whether this is a kind of rose tinted version of what it, what it like the good old days where it was like you know a manager and a group of people and a, and a bottle of scotch and basically everything's off record and now Obviously, going to the other extent of a ever increasing wall of sponsors behind a backdrop and you know robotically controlled um, sports stars. Do you think is is either of them them actually true? You know, what, what are the sort of golden years as golden as maybe they were kind of you know maybe we look back and think they may have been? Yeah, I mean it's, it's good, good good question, and I think like all these things, it is double edged. I, I don't think you know it's never. You know, I'm always wary um, of sort of, yes, you say, talking about the golden a golden era as if that was perfect, because I think every era has its own strengths and challenges. So you're, you're right. I mean, there, there's no doubt it was different. I mean, you know, I spent, you know, my baptism um, was in the 90s in Manchester. So I was covering Manchester United, you know, which was pretty much the best gig in sport. I mean, it was, you know, the United boom, the heyday. And in when I started, there were eight, ten of us dealing with Alex Ferguson almost on a daily basis. You know, we we didn't just have his mobile number; we had his home. I mean, I remember bringing Alex Ferguson at home to pretty much to ask if you know Ryan Giggs had a had a groin strain. You know, and and that was the you know, and if we wrote something he didn't like, we'd we'd hear about it pretty sharpish too. I mean, it was a it was a very intimate relationship compared to with a lot of what's gone on now but as you say you know sometimes that could be compromised too it was much more manipulated Ferguson was a control freak and you know manipulated journalists you know he would sort of ban you or unban you depending on you know the control he wanted to exert or what you know what you'd written he would play off journalists against each other so yeah I think if I'm honest do I miss that 
intimacy of course i do because every journalist wants to sort of feel like they're on the inside every journalist wants that you know interaction that gives you you know knowledge and understanding of of the people you're dealing with but yeah at the same time sometimes stuff can get too cozy no no doubt about that I think, um, I mean, there's obviously been, as, as you noted, like a, a big professionalization of communications in the sports industry. I think with clubs and governing bodies in particular having kind of far better resourced media teams looking to exercise greater control over how they're portrayed. Do you think that is sort of at least in part a response to an increased focus on news reporting in the sports media? So almost almost kind of moving it off the field and from the from the back page to the front page? Um, maybe I, I I think it's more just to do with the growth of just commercialism full stop in sport. You know, I, I do think images, images become huge images, images become valuable. You know, I mean, you look at the again, I mean, it's, you know, grown exponentially, hasn't it? You're talking about the top sports stars now are, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo Inc. I mean, you know, he is a, you know, he's a global corporation you know uh, of a man in football boots you know and and look at golf and tennis and every other major sport likewise so i think that level of um influence and image making and 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 burnishing of the brand is i think you know it's not all follow the money um the old advice but a lot of it is and and i think you know it's it's the, the awareness that this is marketable and and whenever anything's marketable it's going to bring people who 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 are very image conscious do you think though that that focus on it feels like there's a there's a greater focus on sort of sports administrators behind the scenes and um sort of chief executives of maybe publicly funded organizations maybe maybe the lottery funding aspect of this has got something to do with it but has has that been a change because it doesn't feel sort of it feels from memory as though there wasn't that focus on maybe kind of what goes on in the kind of wood panelled corridors in the way that there that there is now and that sort of sense of holding sort of sports governance bodies in particular to, to account? Um I think you know, I mean I think there's been you know, I think the exposure of of some of the big scandals, I mean FIFA obviously being the biggest. But yeah, I mean I think I think, you know, sport sport has changed itself in you know, in the nature of of the governing bodies and that's brought them into this world of you know image manipulation but with that obviously comes the danger of what's you know what's happening behind the the glossy facade if you if you like i mean I, you know i wrote about it you know i think it's a it's a real theme of my you know 20 30 years of, of doing this that this phrase governing body has become almost not quite redundant but it's certainly you know in jeopardy and in disrepute in some senses i think governing bodies you know now see themselves as marketing departments the marketing de- departments have taken over and i think with that becomes a real danger because if your first priority is to sell the sport then at what cost does that start to influence decision makings about what's right for the sport um you know for example you know most obvious well one obvious example springs to mind of of the uci cycling's governing body in lance armstrong yeah you know we know that that body protected him he ends up paying them a six-figure sum and i remember being interviewing the head of that body and mcquade and he you know he he, he 
you know, even after 10 questions on it, he couldn't get why we saw this as outrageous. You know, he was like, well, he just, Lance just wanted to give us some money to, and it helped to buy some drug testing devices. And, you know, he never thought to think, well, why might that be? And, and how the hell does that look? <laughs> so I think the nature of governing bodies has changed. And, you know, I don't think they were ever, they never had a perfect period or a golden period either. But I do think, yeah, you know, I do think we have seen an obligation to shine a very bright light on on the workings behind them, not least as a lot of them have started cashing in to vast amounts as well. I mean, you know, the, the look at the revenues that go through the IOC, FIFA and so on. And the, you know, some of the governance behind that has been proven to be outrageous, if not criminal. Uh, well, it has been criminal in, in a lot of cases. So yeah, I think I think that's been a, again, the growth of sport, the growth of sports news and that scrutiny. Do you think there's a bit of a tipping point, though, for a, not necessarily kind of governing bodies, but obviously the European Super League and the backlash against that is a is a, is is obviously a very current and excellent example of governing bodies and teams and sports sports organisations massively misreading public sentiment around something, and then obviously the media having a sort of significant role in being able to kind of turn that tanker quite quickly from being full steam ahead to we've made a massive mistake here. Do you think that? There is a genuine change in public sentiment, or do you think even a decision like that at its heart is actually about is actually about sort of commercial priorities? Um, I mean, I thought it was great. I mean, I guess and and thinking it was great and the way it was sort of celebrated makes me worry that it was unique. You know, that it 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 was a rare case where sort of fan power had an effect because I just you know I think sadly a, a, a lot of people are resigned to just the fact that um, there are these forces largely commercial forces in, in, in sport which are shaping it and that you know really you know the fan is the fan has a has a sort of uh, voice only whether they buy this stuff or not and generally they do buy it because they love the sport so they feel almost yeah. you know slave to it um so i think that was a a wonderful uplifting sign that you know there can be another way you know and i don't think it was just fan power i mean i think you know the government i mean I, i'm not rushing to give this government credit for very much um and there are bigger issues than you know football super leagues but i think that threat to to block it with um legislation if necessary was was pretty huge as well but i think um i think the trend you know is unignorable then the trend is too often is towards more you know more 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 how can we get more matches how can we get more competitions you know an administrator might say well yeah that's great because it's creating more well for the sport it's creating more interest more eyeballs um you know and in an ideal world that would be more that could be plowed into grassroots and plowed into yeah. broader growth but yeah we, there's some pretty big questions to be asked about how often that either that happens or we can be sure that that's been done in the right way and thinking about the way sort of sports organizations communicate and also you talked about kind of this professionalization which brings them i, I guess clubs like sort of manchester united who you mentioned earlier where you know, historically, it was, you know, the leading face of the organisation sort of slightly away from the prying eyes of the press officers, just basically ma managing it himself. And I guess the way it's the way it's organised now, and you sort of talked about kind of arm armies of kind of PR teams and things like that, it brings, it brings football clubs and sports organisations far closer to, I guess, sort of traditional corporate businesses of, of a similar size. And I always sense that there's a degree of resentment um, of that, probably both from journalists and, and sports fans. And... Do you think teams and organisations have a 
it's it's a unique balancing act in that they're these multi-billion pound global businesses, but they have to be mindful of these local embedded emotional attachments that people just are never going to have with like the company that makes their computer or their or their soft drink. Do you think that's a, a root cause of some of that unease? That it's almost um you know, if you're a sports fan, you grow up with this incredibly purist idea of what sports meant to be like. And like, you know, you gave cycling and sort of Lance Armstrong as an example, and it's um cycling and football, people have kind of rooted emotional attachments to it. And do you think that just instinctively makes kind of journalists and fans just feel feel very uneasy about the idea that there being this kind of degree of corporate control behind the scenes? I think, you know, I think any you know, any club sporting body needs to be mindful of it and the Super League is the classic example, you know, I mean it will be a case study I I I think and I hope for the next 100 years of how you know, if you become so detached, I mean, I think that was yeah a case study. And if you get ten billionaires, you know, sat around yeah. the same 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 table, you know, you might you might need to think about getting some some a challenging voice or you know uh, a someone you know who's in there with the real world um, approach, um, who's you know who's in there to sort of put the hand up and say you know has anyone thought on the other side of this? So I th- you know that I, I think I, you know, say I hope that really is a sort of just the extreme of of well arrogance of you know contempt for your fans um they would see them as customers obviously but yeah that that yeah that was contempt for what you're talking about i think you know that intrinsic sort of love and 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 passion for the sport so you know and i think it's yeah i, I think on the one hand you have that contempt at your peril because you're liable to see fans outside and you know, throwing things at you and um, <laughs> telling that. But equally, you know, I guess the cont- we, we know where the contempt is built on, I guess, which is that certainly if you look at English football, the interest is is so huge and so so loyal that they almost do feel, well, they clearly do feel that they could have got away with anything. Um, so it's, that passion is, is one of the greatest things about sport and I think the return of fans I don't know how it's been for you but you know even a quarter full stadium to me at the moment feels like you know the best atmosphere in the history yeah. of the world ever yeah. I, you know I don't know I'm sure someone could do some scientific test that would tell us if fans are just making more noise per per head in a stadium than they ever have but it, it feels that way and I think that return of fans has proved to us that you know there is something intrinsic to sport in that that is incredibly special and should be protected um, and should be enhanced even. But um, I, I guess with with the growth of TV money um, in, in sport, there's been a blurring of priorities on that as well as to who, who you're looking after. Is it the, the eyeballs in Asia or is it the guy paying 20 quid for a seat in, in Macclesfield? Yeah. Do you, do, you, do you think that if you sort of thinking about advising a large governing body with you know huge commercial interests or maybe a premiership football team you know with a global multi-million pound business if you're sort of advising them how to set up their communications function would you instinctively 
guide them away from having this kind of setup that you might expect in a more corporate organization where you have, you know, directors of communications and kind of commercial engagement and multiple press offices and carefully stage managed engagement. As as someone who as someone who writes about this on a daily basis, does does that do you find that kind of getting your back up straight away? You're almost sort of starting from starting from a negative position because you just you feel like there's something to hide almost if they're set up like that and do you do you understand why they have to they have to operate like that i think we do i mean you know however however frustrating it can be i i think there's most journalists now you know, there's, a, there's a real world understanding that you know as you say it's, this these are huge businesses now i mean again go back to man united i mean when i was starting there in the early 90s there was not a press officer you know there was a yeah nice guy ken ramsden who would sort of occasionally act as a facilitator of things he was a club secretary effectively but he, you know who was sort of you know general sort of dog's body around the place yeah. who would you know a, a, occasionally help but i mean it was dealing with alex ferguson secretary direct um you know so i think there's an understanding now or or ferguson direct but is there is an understanding now that 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 um you know that had to change that's bound to change that will change and i think the right the best organizations still can bring in you know a level of corporate um structure and um control and still be human beings you know and still engage well and allow you to understand their business and allow you the 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 access that that makes you feel like okay i'm not quite on the inside but i'm i'm getting to grips with who these people are and what their mission is and how they operate um you know, I, you know, and I think, I think people, I think they are wise to that. I mean, you know, I'd say, because I do think people, you know, it's not just journalists, I think fans can smell guff, to be honest, quite quickly. I mean, you know, I think we've seen that in the Amazon, different Amazon and Netflix documentaries. I think, you know, some get huge viewing figures because there's a, they're rooted in reality. I mean, I, you know, the one on Manchester, I mean, Man- Manchester City one, I, I'm not sort of picking on them particularly because they do some stuff quite well but you know they're you bear in mind they had a fly on the wall documentary series about this club and the, one of the most fascinating managers in the history of the world you know in football football i mean pep guardiola who wouldn't want to see how he does team talks and how he interacts and stuff i gave up on that series after a, you know one and a half episodes because i soon realized it was so slick it wasn't going to tell me anything you know it it, it was just it was just marketing guff. So I think people do, you know, I, someone maybe can come back with the figures and say, well, that was you as a journalist. The fans loved it, but I don't, considering the access they had, I didn't sense any real traction in that. It's not like anyone's talking about it still or coming back to it still. So I think there is a very fine line between offering fly on the wall reality and yeah. just marketing a, a marketing advert, basically. Do you think that's likely to be a growing trend? I mean, obviously the kind of um, document, very kind of you know high production value documentary series on streaming services and that real behind. Obviously, we don't know what the kind of agreements were in terms of the sort of access that you get, but feels like cameras in places that you wouldn't normally see cameras from kind of you know external media. Do you, do you think that? Things like that, where clubs are kind of taking control, you know, clubs and organisations of sports, that's like taking control of telling their own story. And and maybe the sort of example you gave there of feeling like something's kind of marketing guff, you sort of just don't sense an authenticity to it. 
there's obviously an attempt there to kind of control the narrative around you know how pe- how people view your team, the story you want to tell. As a journalist, do you see something like that and think, well, I'm actually more determined now to sort of scratch the surface because I, yeah. I, I get a sense here that, well, this is the kind of, you know, the rose-tinted version of what you want me to see, but this this makes me want to basically scratch away to find out what you're hiding, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, it's a good it's a good point. It is a challenge. I mean, there's nothing... I mean, I always say I'm always amazed by, you know, and still organisations do it, and I'm sure it's not just sport, but, you know, when you know, when it's obvious that something is sort of kicking off and, and certain, you know, organisations just sort of go for the complete, you know, hand-in-face approach. And I just think if there's if there's one thing you want to <laughs> do that's going to guarantee that journalists are going to come back, you know, with sort of twice twice the numbers and twice the appetite to, to get under it, it's then it's just to completely try and bluff your way out of, of pretending that something happens when it's, you know, the cat's long out of the bag that there's a story here. Now, you know, not naive enough to think you might not try and control it and limit the damage. But, you know, there are still, say, organisations that sort of do this pretense that um, there's, you know, no story here, Gov. Um, and, it, yeah, I mean, it puts you back up and it does make you want to dig ever harder. I mean, I think these, you know, I think we, again, you know, it makes sense. Some of these documentary series are hugely popular. I made one fleeting appearance on the drive for survive um yeah formula one one my phone went nuts more more than if i'd written the best article i'd ever written in the times which which is seen as having a transformative effect on yeah on f1 so, and the way people view it i mean a personal experience there i so probably haven't watched an f1 race in a decade and suddenly you find yourself binge watching drive to survive on netflix and well because yeah because you know. I, th- I think it does show you know i I've, I've not watched loads of it but bits i have seen I think Formula One has had an issue with personalities, and yeah. you know, I think I think whatever drama it's, it's it's put on in races, I think you know people have not really got to grips with you know characters, and you know people like rivalries and they like feuding and they like you know this idea of of sort of you know um, you know personal um, you know whether it's dueling um, uh, and and I think Formula One has struggled with that. So I think the Drive Survive has brilliantly sort of filled that gap. So I think in, you know there's no doubt in some sports it definitely it definitely works. And it you know again it I mean we've got to be realistic in and if if you know I'm calling myself traditional media we've got to be realistic that there are so many means now for sports bodies and for sports individuals to put themselves out there. I remember yeah. speaking to one of Anthony Joshua's people about this and and you know pitching long and hard for an interview and you know <laughs> I sort of talked myself out for about an hour and I think bought him a nice lunch and at the end he was like <laughs> yeah but you know the Times has got this readership and Anthony Joshua's Instagram is now you know 300 squillion um, sort of what are we going to do about that so uh, you know I, we do have to be real about that but equally I like to think that there's a room for all of us and that there is also a say a, an understanding that proper journalism will have its place because people do want authenticity and they're not always going to get that yeah. on Instagram there's a couple of sort of interesting points there though about I, I think you know obviously your acceptance that there's you know if you are you know give the Cristiano Ronaldo example of having kind of 500 million followers on social media how how do you compete with that? Like what what's the kind of what what's the incentive for someone, a sports organization or star who can speak directly to his audience? Inset what's the incentive for them to sort of step step outside of that 
of their of their own bubble and kind of use you know sort of traditional media as as you, as you turned it and thinking about the sort of calculations sort of sports stars and organizations make and you said something there i thought was interesting about um the approach of you know some stars and sports organizations who i think you said like the hand and face approach of like nothing to see here and there's lots of examples of, of, of this in recent years and i think obviously the british sports media in particular is, is really well known I, th- I think internationally for you know for its kind of campaigning and its pursuit of a lot of issues around sports administration and welfare that have you know clearly been really significant and and resulted in important changes. Do you think though that there are almost sort of two tiers of sports audience? So there's a huge group who just want to enjoy the show and they to like the political term they don't really want to know how the sausage is made. And then there's a much smaller group who think um, who are engaged in the sort of wider issues in sport and its governance. Do you kind of understand the calculation really big big brand sports stars and organisations might make if they think the audience for this is limited, the commercial impact of it is potentially limited because perhaps not that many people care about it and it's not going to be read by that many people. Do you think that's given sports stars and athletes and organisations the confidence to feel that they can just brazen out negative media coverage on the basis that ultimately it possibly has limited impact? Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot, lot in that. I mean, I think the, yeah, I mean, sure, there's no, no doubt some do brazen it out, but I think sort of thinking that you can always have it on your own terms is, I mean, I, I just yeah. wouldn't advise that. I wouldn't advise that approach full stop just because life, life tends to come along and bite you on the ass. Um, <laughs> if, you know, if you just, I think it doesn't matter what sector you're in, you know, I just think, I think you have to be probably a little bit more, um, humble and aware than that don't you that you know you you know that that's the case i mean look at you know to stray into i hope not too um dangerous territory but you know in in ronaldo's case you know football leaks i mean you know there was a payment made there's no you know two two ways about that a substantial payment made to someone um which to make something disappear then it came back and you know now he might think he has brazened it out he, you know there is no ongoing case as far as we're aware but i you know uh his sponsorship deals seem intact but um there's that case there's tiger woods obviously probably you know probably more even more obviously you know something that suddenly creeps up on you and you you think you've kept under wraps so there's you know and there's a zillion different examples I'm sure we could bring to that so I do say I do think you know the idea that you will sort of you know just get away with stuff is is very dangerous and on and just on another point you made as well about the two-tier audience I mean I do I get that and I do think it exists I mean obviously now with online readership we get more data than ever about what people read and don't read and stuff and there's occasional times you know to be honest where you know someone will have put a heck of a lot of journalistic donkey work and and digging into a story that you know qualifies as sports news and ultimately will probably get quite a disappointing readership because it's maybe seen as you know it's not the thrills of of the action it's not you know the big personality and and you you know if you looked at those figures on one story in or another in isolation you think well is this really worth our resources and our time but i do think that would be a dangerous road to go down because it's unless you have you know colleague of mine that you've dealt with someone like Matt Lawton who is probably the you know the best at this unless you have someone like him 
he was given the license and the encouragement to keep digging on those stories. You know, even if one gets a low readership, if you know, you have to get a hundred of those, shall we say, smaller versions to get the one yeah. humdinger to get the FIFA corruption, you know, to get David Walsh on Lance Armstrong. You know, you have yeah. to you have to have the hunger to keep going and you have to have the resources to keep going and you have to, uh, and you have to have the encouragement from the bosses at the newspapers. So, uh, you know, and I, and I was going to say like in, in an age where, you know, obviously, like you say, you have, you have much more data and there's that sense of, you know, newspapers going behind paywalls and being much more conscious of, of clicks and ultimately what, what people are reading. Have you felt that there is a sort of shift in the editorial dynamic where there is, there is maybe like, because, there are, there are, you know, you gave, you gave some, you gave some examples there of kind of very high profile. Um, I don't like to use the word scandals, but also sports administration stories that are obviously in the public interest. But then there are, there are some around what you might kind of fairly think are minority sports and maybe ones that people only sort of switch their attention to every four years when the Olympics comes on and it might be about equipment that's used or an administrator that perhaps people, you know, ask a hundred people in the street and they, they with no disrespect won't have heard of them. Have you felt that there's a kind of editorial shift now to being like, no, maybe that's that's not where we want to go. There's less of an appetite for those stories, or or is there? Do you feel you've had the kind of backing to keep, you know, to to keep pursuing those sort of stories? I I would probably say that literally does depend from title to title. I mean, I would say yeah. you know I can only speak for the. T- I mean, you know, and I would say uh, you know I have we we are aware that you know certain newspapers. Um, Mentioning no rivals, but you can guess at least one. Yeah. Um, um, well, there are some very good journalists, but there is stories have gone round about you know the, yeah. the 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 figures that their their pieces are getting and the editorial um, pressures that are put on people to, to to keep those numbers rolling. I, I would have to say at yeah. the times, you know, be honest about it, we get some feedback about you know, well, oh, this this piece did better than we expected or this piece was a bit disappointing but it's certainly not on a sort of regular these are your numbers you know raise your game or yeah we must hit this and you know the fact that you know we went and employed someone like Matt Lawton to do that I think was a very clear sign that there is a future um, and there has to be a future in in digging, in in yeah. letting someone have you know weeks, months, if it takes it to throw themselves at a story that might yield nothing. I mean, you you know, I think people again are sort of so, uh, very simplistic sometimes about the sort of you know threshold that we have to cross to to get stuff in the paper. I mean, yeah. it's it's you know it's bloody hard sometimes to to get stuff you know li- through the legal minefield um yeah. a lot harder than people would assume but i think it so i think it, re- it ultimately comes down to each title to have their own priorities and while undoubtedly you know figures can say that you know this type of clickbait works or this type of you know glitz and glamour works there has to be and I, i'm sure that the times as long as i'm there will be a place for proper resourced um yeah. proper news i mean because ultimately the best thing in news you know i i if I press send on a, you know, a great column, whenever that is, if I can remember one, but you know, that, that, that is a nice feeling, but there is nothing, there is nothing, you know, there is nothing, it's still called a newspaper and there is nothing like that story for, for any journalist to feel yeah. like they have, you know, told the world something they, well, first didn't know and 
you know, if other people had had their way, would never have found out. Yeah. And I'll give you an example of one of your great columns here. So you wrote an excellent piece for the Times recently about um, Naomi Osaka's decision not to speak to media at the French Open. And now this isn't distinct to her decision because obviously there there are issues around that. But there was a lot of debate following her decision around the role of traditional press conferences and the engagement between sort of sports stars and the media. And you sort of raised there that sense of you gave a couple of well-known journalistic names who are sort of famous for sort of rapidly pursuing stories and asking the difficult questions. And I think, you know, I, I've had responsibility for organising kind of press conferences and sat in on plenty of them. Do you, do you think there's a there's a difficulty when we're thinking about that desire for their, for, you know, athletes to provide access to the media and that balance between them being kind of ultra controlled or giving something away and opening up a little bit? Do you think there's a difficulty when journalists almost become known? It's not through any fault of theirs, but they become. It's almost becomes part of their external branding that they're like the interrogator in chief. And if you're a if you're a sports star, and like you know, for Lance Armstrong, it's a perfect example of this is Paul Kimmage and the you know the, the and and David Walsh as well. And if you were in a sort of similar circumstances now, do you understand why if you are and the, the hypothetical sports star with 500 million social media followers and you're being told, right, there's a press conference and that guy's in the room. Do you understand why there's a... Ultimately, they become exercises in damage limitation to some extent because no good can come from that. And if well, you I think, follow that through... Yeah, go ahead. I, yeah, well, this phrase even... I mean, it's interesting to use the phrase, yeah, no good could come from that. I mean, I think it's, you know, look, I sense, you know, if someone's got something to hide, then... Yeah, <laughs> but potentially no good come from that and i i can't you know like i you know don't think any well any journalist with any self-awareness should accept that you know most sports stars don't walk into the room going great you know this is going to be the highlight of my day i get to i get yeah. to sit, and, sit in front of a firing <laughs> squad of 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 50 journalists and and you know i the fact is that these press conferences, however they started, whatever the sort of genesis is, you know, a lot of them now, yeah, the reason that the Grand Slams were so upset with Osaka was because the sponsors pay a lot of money for it, the yeah. broadcasters pay a lot of money for it. This it's part of the great money making machine where we that that we started with. So it, it's not even done for the journalist's benefit, really. It's done, you know, well at all. It's done for you get know, sponsor to, branding on the television. Exactly. To get yeah, profile. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I think, you know, that 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 thing about you know anything to gain from it. I mean, I think you know to bring it to where where we're um, obviously in the middle of the Euros and 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 yeah. England going on. I mean, I think Gareth Southgate did a. I mean, it's it's right. It's so simplistic, and and therefore all the more reason that so many sports organisations do not do this with sports stars. I mean, this to me is the most basic and fundamental media training. Is that every sports star has a story to tell. Now, some yeah. will be better at telling it than others. Some will understandably have a reticence about going in front of the media, but they've all got, you know, you don't get to the top of sport without having done something extraordinary on the way or having overcome great obstacles on the way. And Gareth Southgate did something incredibly simple, which is just, you know, instead of regarding the press as an enemy, let's try and turn this on its head. And, you know, Raheem Sterling, what a story you've got. You You came up through... Some pretty hard deprivation. Lost his his dad was shot when he was a, an infant. Moving countries, had you know his mum doing you know ten jobs a day and and to keep the family afloat, getting his breakfast from a vending machine. Go and tell that story. Yeah. Marcus Rashford, obviously, huge high profile to his campaign, and that's his story. But it's been encouraged by 
the England manager. So there was just this sense of, look, you know, it's never going to be all be, you know, love and cuddles. You know, there could be times when you're going to walk in and you're going to get hit by stuff, you know, that's painful and difficult and after defeats or after something or other. But let's work on the basis of when you walk in the room, you've got, you're going in with something to tell them. And I just think that's, it's, it strikes, you know, it's so stained the bleeding obvious that it feels insulting to say it. And yet it still staggers me that more organizations do not get this and more individuals don't get this, that, that that's, that's just, you know, do, do walk, you think, walk in there with something in yeah. your head, you know? Do you think the, the press conference though, as a construct is, because I, I absolutely get your point. Do you think the press conference though is the construct for that to happen? Because there's a kind of, there's this completely artificial jammed window of time where you go and sit in front of a sponsor's board in a air conditioned room 20 minutes after you've walked off a football field and you're all whatever the, whatever the sport may be. And the sense of kind of it being so transactional, you know, this is a, this is a requirement. You have to do this or you're going to get fined that can't bring out the best in someone who has got a story to tell. And do, do you sort of feel like the role of the press conference needs to be, it needs to be adapted, whether that's kind of run its course or there's a better way of doing it. I, I mean, it's a good question. And I, I, I would love to say I've come up with a, I mean, I, I, the only genius <laughs> answer I can come up with is just, it's just talk to me or my colleagues at the times just for, you know, a more intimate relationship. But I mean, that is the trouble. I mean, it's, it, you know, it, it, the press conference was, was born in a, I guess, in, yes, in an era where more intimacy was possible, sport has, has grown and made the whole thing unwieldy. But I was, I was pretty, uh, I was going to, I won't swear, but annoyed at some, <laughs> a few of my colleagues um, who, in response to the Asaka yeah. thing, sort of used that as a sort of, yes, the, the press conference is a waste of time. It's, you know, what's the point, you know, and, and, almost self-flagellating of, you know, who us yeah. journalists to sort of think we are thinking that, you know, anyone is obliged to come and speak to us. But I, from a, per, a journalist point of view, you know, access is hard enough to get as it is. Yeah. And if we stop doing this, then A, we're sort of surrendering, you know, something that we will never get back. And B, there are times, you know, some of the time it is a name, you know, you might have to go to a 50 terrible press conferences to go to the one humdinger but there are still humdingers there are still ones where questions have to be asked I mean you've worked in, in yeah in cycling I mean if, if Brad Wiggins you know there is stuff that is not okay this is not um trade secret this is not high politics but there are questions that we need to ask of him potentially awkward questions you know he has been a publicly funded athlete as well so it's you know there is if you say to someone there's never going to be another press conference then a lot of that's going to be ducked and missed and and so i you know i think the press conference is a horribly um imperfect world but it's not the only interaction obviously we have you know sports stars do still you know go off and do their one-on-ones or different all sorts of different circumstances but yeah i i I can't instantly and immediately think of a better one. I want actually one. I mean, you, you've dealt with with Chris Froome from a yeah. previous life as well. I mean, one thing I would say is that he, Chris. I don't know. I you maybe you can claim credit for this now, actually. But I, what the one thing <laughs> I, I will if it's good. Yeah, don't worry. <laughs> well, no, but one thing I thought he was so smart that you know, and it's a really clever work. Again, I'm amazed more athletes don't do this. Is that he used to always walk in? Certainly, in my experience, walk in and before anyone could ask a question, because you know. And he would know that, you know, there'll be journalists to be there, you know, desperate to get that first question off and to, you know, 
land their blow or whatever it might be and he would always walk in and say right before guys before you start i just want to say you know a thanks for being here making the effort to come and see me b just to update you this is how i'm feeling this is how my form is and it's he'd just speak for a few minutes and it's yeah. amazing how that that would sort of change the dynamic in the room it would almost sort of you know take the feverishness uh, out of the room and it was a tiny technique but i always thought this is such a clever technique because it was, you know you've suddenly really just disarming say, basically yeah, yeah and and hey you know and it's quite a charming thing to do and you know yeah. we're, all, we're all i mean not on every um not on every occasion but i mean you know even even journalists um can you know can be flattered with a bit of charm so i again i just thought it's such a simple technique but why why more don't do it I, i'm not sure and cycling is probably a good example really that, that sort of constructs I was talking about around press conferences and that sense of and you know that that's you know, I've also had experience being in these and regardless of the rider typically regardless of the rider especially if there has been sort of some something going on in the kind of framework of the sport around you know doping and you know and clearly this is an issue that's uh it's it, you know is a shadow of the sport that's it, that's a long one frankly and if you get to a rest day press conference at the Tour de France. Now, regardless of anything to do with the rider in the yellow jersey giving that press conference, you're going to be asked about doping. And I I, I can absolutely see that that is a, a entirely justified line of inquiry based on everything we know about everything we've watched for the last, you know, X years in professional cycling. But I think that, you know, you gave the example of Chris Rim being it's an incredible backstory and, you know, a, a really good interviewee if you sat down one-on-one. -on -one. But for someone like Chris, I can sort of see the flip side of that being, well, I'm just going to go in and be held to account for something that might not even be my responsibility, but I'm a spokesman for the sport, so I have to talk to it. And I think that the challenge there is, and I, I, your point is absolutely right about press conferences, that there's an assumption in criticising them that they would be replaced by something. And actually what they might be replaced by is the 15 minute video on YouTube where you answer viewers questions and you don't have to kind of worry about worry about the media anymore. So I think, I think your point stands that it, it's it, it's being, being careful what you wish for in terms of kind of get, getting rid of them, I think. One of the things you said in your time speech, which I thought was interesting, was again about athlete stories and you highlighted the way in which I think um, his off-limits media interaction helped uh, create the legend of people like Muhammad Ali. And do you think if there was a sports star today who had, you know, and there there are examples of this, but who had similarly kind of um, unfiltered engagements with the media, so they went on the chat shows and basically threw out their controversial statements, do, do you think that we would take the same approach today of almost thinking of it as something that was burgeoning the legend? Or would they be held to account far harder than maybe they would have been 20, 30 years ago? Um, I mean, well, because I think, yeah, I mean, with Ali, you probably have to put it in context because he sort of you know, builds builds the legend now, but obviously at the time was was, was hugely controversial yeah. um, and caught, you know, he was hugely polarising. I mean, obviously, yeah. you know, certainly through the you know his muslim conversion and then obviously the vietnam war stance and so on and, and so yeah. a lot of that you know is we remember it now with this lovely hue, warm hue and 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 what a extraordinary figure he was but he had to go through yeah you know, years you know, and obviously the the, the ban as well so I, I did i think any fig any figure that gets involved in huge social campaigns i mean Ra rashford is probably a, a very rare example of someone who can sort of put a foot in that world and 
pretty much get universal backing. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, it wasn't universal. I've seen criticism yeah, and, absolutely, and, yeah. and heard it, but I think, you know, by and large, he has come out of it, um, you know, glowing. But I think, yeah, I think straying into social areas, you know, I mean, but as I was talking to Gary Lineker about this only the other day, because obviously he's some uh, uh, high-profile sporting figure who has got involved, you know, via social media in in political campaigns and social campaigns, you know, whether it's Brexit or refugees. And, uh, you know, we're chatting and I said, don't you get to the point where you think, well, this is not worth the yeah the the backlash and the angst that might cause and he's he said occasionally almost gets to that point but then generally just comes down to look i've you know before you know social media might be a a pretty horrible place at times but it's given me a platform and i'm going to use it to 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 push causes that i think are, are are good and worthwhile so we haven't really gone too much on social media but i think it's well, that that was his take, and I and I I get it. I mean, I'm you know, yeah. I have to say, I sort of find myself retreating more more from social media, um, wondering if it is worth the the the, the pain in the aggro. But um, um, I I, you know, I don't have his I don't have his platform. And so finally, I sort of started off by asking how things had changed up to this point. What do you think? What do you think the future looks like? What do you think the sort of next five years of sports journalism look like in terms of your engagements with uh, the people you write about? Um, what, what what do you see changing, and where, and where do you see it going? Ooh, um, I mean, I think you know, I, th- I think the growth that we've talked about isn't doesn't look like it's it's stopping anytime soon, does it? I mean, I think you know the. Um, sport itself which to say i think is you know in many ways is 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 a good thing but it does still it does it does mean that basically the world is more complicated for us as journalists i think it's more you know you can still get the intimacy for want of a better word you can still get to people you can still meet some fascinating people and you still ultimately i mean i guess the tone of that piece i wrote in that piece was that i still want to tell the stories of amazing people doing amazing things i mean that's what you know, I mean, we come to sport for the drama itself, I guess. Who's going to win this race? Who's going to win this football match? But I, you know, I think, you know, almost increasingly as I get older, I, I'm i as interested in the people and what motivates them and how they do it, what, you know, yeah. and what makes them do it and what drives them. So, I, I, you know, I'm in some ways, and maybe it is because it can sometimes feel more of a barrier. I'm as I'm as desperate to tell those stories as ever. I would say it, sometimes it can feel harder work to to get to them. It can feel like you say you have to chip away for longer and get through more layers of control to get there. But I, I, I think the growth of sport is a good thing, and you know I'd, I'd like to think we've still got a huge part to play as traditional media in in telling those stories. While you know, let's be blunt, I guess not always. <laughs> Um, wanting or feeling we should t- allow people to tell them all on their own terms that there are times when there's going to there's got to be some hard questions put and I think the place yeah. for you know say some of those columns that were after the soccer thing were sort of saying you know who the journalists think they are sort of think that they can sort of you know they have this right to go into press conferences and ask difficult questions well sorry but I think yeah there's still a place for that in 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 sport as well I mean you know it's not always going to be sweetness and light and goodness it's all of human life is in sport and we need to tell tell the good the bad and the ugly 
that seems like a good place to end it. Thanks very much for your time, Matt. No problem. No problem. <laughs> <laughs>